Hello and welcome to episode 80 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. For those of you who are listening for the first time, my name's Julian Carl and I'm CEO and the co-founder of Synergen Group. I'm passionate about all things leadership and management. So passionate, in fact, that I decided to start a podcast about it. And here we are in season two, and my purpose for the podcast continues to be the same, to raise the standard of leadership. In today's show, I speak with Anna Faringa, who is a workplace mental health consultant, speaker, trainer, and mental health program strategist. Untreated mental health conditions cost Australian employers $10.9 billion every year, according to Beyond Blue. Recent research by SafeWork Australia found more time at work is lost to mental disorders than any other type of injury or illness. As a workplace mental health speaker and consultant, Anna supports employers by helping them see that embracing mental health in the workplace can help prevent injury, drive a great culture. She works with Australian businesses to go from fearful and confused to confident and responsive when faced with mental health challenges in the workplace. She also helps these Australian businesses to understand how to be a best practice employer when it comes to psychological safety in the workplace through implementing uncomplicated and practical systems and offering dynamic educational forums. Now, during the course of the conversation, we speak about all things related to workplace mental health. We start by looking at exactly what is workplace mental health and what a mental health problem looks like. We speak a lot about what a leader should look for and when to have the conversation. We also take some time to discuss the difference between a mental health conversation and a performance management conversation. We finish the interview by talking about the three-stage framework Anna has developed as a guide for leaders. So keep listening, and as always, would really like to hear your thoughts about the interview with Anna Faringa, workplace mental health consultant, speaker, and trainer. Happy listening. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian returns in 2019 with weekly conversations with leaders and authors from Australia and around the world giving you the opportunity to share in their journey and learn from their expertise and knowledge. Julian also shares some of the tools and techniques he uses as a leader, mentor and facilitator, helping you to build your leadership capability and improve your confidence as a leader. Welcome, Anna, to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time to be a part of it. So that the listeners have a bit of an idea about who you are, who is Anna Fringer. Thanks, Julian. It's a pleasure to be here and, uh, you know, thank you for bringing me onto the show. So I guess who is Anna Fringer? Well, Anna Fringer uh, has been a very busy lady of late uh, because what I do is I practice across Australia and a touch of international with helping people understand how to manage mental health in workplaces from a practical, logistical, and caring approach. Uh, that includes a multitude of industries. Uh, there's no one that's accepted or an exception to this kind of risk in the workplace. So I guess, you know, I've got the blue collar industry. I've got a lot of white collar industries from banks. One day I'll be in high heels. The next day I'll be in steel caps. Going around Australia and hearing the problems that exist in workplaces and helping them uh, put programs and and methods in place where people can better understand it and better operate within it. Great. So to give the listeners some context, uh, I was lucky enough to sit in on uh, a presentation Anna gave uh, through, through a client that we're both doing some work with, and I thought it was really useful uh, for the listeners because I think it's a topic which a lot of leaders aren't really uh, equipped to deal with. So are you able to give... The, the listeners a bit of a definition about what is workplace mental health. Yeah, sure. 
So I guess the best way to describe what is workplace mental health, you think about safety in all its physical means. You go, you get a job. The first thing they do is obviously they give you a contract and they make sure that you adhere to compliance because they don't want anyone to get hurt in the workplace. A, they care about people's well-being, but secondly, there's you know obviously liability and litigation, bits and pieces attached with that, so it's taken seriously. It's a no-brainer. Flip it onto the mental health side, which is essentially 50% of our safety as human beings. Uh, there isn't a lot to nurse that, to control it, to, to understand, you know, I'm working for this organisation. If I become mentally unwell, what's the company's standpoint? How are they going to treat me? How are they going to respond? Uh, so I guess what we're trying to do is firstly have people understand that mental health is one of the leading causes of disability in Australia and that organisations need to have recognition and processes and programs in place to identify, respond and manage when someone becomes mentally unwell. With one in five people in any organisation suffering a mental health problem at any one point in time, it just makes sense to be able to have a program in that organisation that allows workers to understand what they are to expect if they become unwell and also from a leadership perspective, what's my role as a leader when responding or identifying if someone's becoming unwell? Whose role is what and how do we give this person the best opportunity to get back to work and start performing and behaving the way that they normally did? Um, and essentially a, a good or a good healthy workplace in that sense or mental health in the workplace is just making sure that people are mentally and physically safe all at the one time. Because if your company is just physically safe, which most are because we have compliance to adhere to, your organisation is really only 50% safe. So exactly what is a mental health problem? Good question. It's a very common question. I get asked it a lot uh, because, you know, it's quite funny. Uh, mental health is becoming, quite, you know, quite the hot topic uh, around Australia now, it's uh, you know starting to pour out of Parliament. It's it's all over the media. It's becoming something that people are talking about more and more often. And humans are, are very interesting because once we learn about something, we automatically become experts. So you know everyone's quite happy to to throw terms like anxiety or depression or adjustment disorder or post traumatic stress disorder around because we know what it is. Uh, but uh, there's, there, there are certain things that we need to identify to, A, calm society because, you know, we're all very quick to self-diagnose, uh, particularly when you're having a bad day or several of them. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean you're unwell. That's just life. But the reason why they call it a bad day is that bad days end, those days where you're feeling low or disengaged or withdrawn or unhappy or irritated um, or demotivated. A mental health issue is all of those feelings that I've just said that continue for a period of time. So I have two ways that I can describe what a mental illness or a mental health issue is. Firstly, how bad do you feel? And with those feelings in mind, are you still able to function? Because everyone can get out of bed and they can feel like crap, like we do all the time but they can still get the kids to school, they can pack lunches, they can make training, coaching, attend their hobbies and get to work on time. It's when all of those bits and pieces start to suffer, you stop going to things that you enjoy, your normal day-to-day -day capacity is starting to suffer. Something as easy as getting to work on time is actually a lot harder to achieve.
because it takes you a lot, lot, lot longer to get going. Uh, so you can feel bad, but as soon as it starts to impact your day-to-day functioning, that's a warning sign. That's where it's gone from a bad day into something a little bit more serious and we need to talk about it. The second part is duration. How long have I been feeling this way? So clinically, with a, with a multitude of clinical studies coming out of places like Monash and U- University of New South Wales, Black Dog and Beyond Blue, is the two weeks too long is a really nice, clean sign. Most of the people that they've, they've interviewed and, and, and working around with research um, have had a consistent reporting that they'd felt these symptoms for longer than two weeks. So that's, that's, that's what I would define. Can you function and have you been feeling this way for longer than two weeks? That would define potentially that you are slipping into a mental health issue area. And we've got to be careful with these words because not, not everything's a mental illness. So duration and can you function? Okay. And so before we get into it, what does a mentally healthy workplace look like? That's a really good question uh, because, you know, I, I wish I could say there were a lot of them. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, people are only starting this journey because it's only really the, the importance of it's only really starting to get recognised now. Uh, but, you know, from of those few organisations that are starting to get it right, uh, a, a healthy workplace from a mental health perspective, firstly and foremostly, needs to have CEO, ELT, CE or MD endorsement, okay? Everyone that works in that organisation needs to know that this is a priority for senior management. If the message is not coming from senior management and it's coming somewhere from human resources or safety in the middle somewhere, the level of respect and seriousness is not really taken up. So if your executive leadership team are behind it, you're prioritising it, you've got it on your agenda and you're communicating it effectively out to your workplace, that's what can define a very mentally healthy workplace because people start to take it seriously because the senior senior management team does. A healthy workplace also has adequate training and communication around mental health. I mean, I can't imagine going to work for an organisation where on the back of a toilet door as opposed to saying, please consider, consider wearing steel caps. You just wouldn't hear of it because they are going through training that um, helps people understand how to stay safe in whatever risky environment you've got. But right now, that's where how to stay mentally safe is sitting, in cafeterias, in smoko rooms and on the back of toilet doors. Uh, so it's important to have good communication and mandatory training in that building to help people identify, manage and respond to mental health problems in the workplace. Coupled with that, um, you've got a, a workplace that makes workers feel okay if they need to speak up because there's two things someone worries about when they want to speak up or not in a workplace if they think they're becoming unwell. They don't want to lose their mates and they don't want to lose their money. Okay, I don't want my co-workers to judge me and I don't want my workplace to judge my capability. Get that message right through an adequate program. That's going to put a lot of people at ease and you'll find people will speak up sooner. And the sooner they speak up, the more opportunity the organisation has to get in there, support them, and hopefully rectify something before it becomes a bigger and greater issue where most situations right now are sitting because we've waited too long to intervene. And that's not because people are or companies are awful or, or, or ignorant. It's just that they haven't been shown how to do it. People are just looking for clarity and permission. What's the right way? I want to help, but how do I help? Get that message right in a workplace 
and you'll find that the culture will start to shift dramatically and it will literally just take off. So senior management priorities, good communication and training, you know, low discrimination, okay, because people will not speak up if they think they're going to get discriminated against. Bottom line, that's called self-preservation. Clear those messages up, people will talk sooner, you will rectify sooner and you will save good people and good jobs. I imagine that would be one of the the biggest challenges you face is creating that environment so people do feel safe to, to speak up. Very hard. You know why it's hard, Julian, is because we're talking about workplaces. When they step outside that workplace door to head home, they're stepping into a more heavily stigmatized environment. So it's very, very hard to have a complete mentally healthy workplace when that workplace is operating in a stigmatized environment. Okay, it's very, very hard. But what it is, what is easy is making steps that are adequate for that organization to, to, to build in that are that are easily understood, that they stand by, and that is consistent. Because when I'm spending time with people around Australian workplaces, even if workplaces are making an attempt to be proactive in the mental health space, sometimes it's viewed as token or ticker box. Yeah. Okay, so it needs to come up and be consistent in that way. One of the things which I took away from... Uh your presentation was this idea of how to avoid becoming the accidental counsellor. And I thought it was a really useful uh, discussion point. So you're able to share a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. It's very easy to be the accidental counsellor. I'm sure you've been one. I've, I've, I've certainly been one even before I've completed my psychological qualifications. Uh, we, ac- we accidentally counsel people every day. You know, whether it's your family, your friends or people at work, because that's what we're bred to do. We're bred to care. But the the, the problem with that when it comes into the workplace is that people lose sight of what their role is and what their boundaries are. So the fear of accidental counselling, ironically, is actually stopping people from caring because they want to care. But what do I say if something is wrong? How do I respond to that? How do I work it out? What if I say something to this worker that's going to offend them or upset them? You know, because mental health's personal and it sits in this big, deep, dark corner where no one talks about it and tiptoes around it. So being an accidental counsellor can have an ironic outcome of actually stopping people from asking if they're okay. On the flip side, say we do it really well, we relate, you know, oh, my sister or my brother's going through what you went through and... And what we find there is that we've got a bunch of people in workplaces that are starting to give advice for a mental health or a potential mental health problem. And accidental counselling can then become quite strenuous, if so dangerous, uh, because there's a risk of advising the the, the wrong resolution and there's also a risk of that worker becoming incredibly codependent on that manager because it feels damn good to have a nice conversation with someone that understands me and they've given me advice on what I should do to fix it. Um, so, and then, you know, from a, from a third piece, it burns managers out, burns leaders out because when you have a really nice conversation with someone when you're unwell, you're going to want more of them. So a lot of managers are sitting in rooms day after day, week after week, guest counselling out of the kindness of their own heart. Uh, but really, I call it the band-aid and antibiotic effect. The manager is a band-aid, Right sitting in rooms, having these conversations over and over again because it feels nice. But if I've got an infection and I put a Band-Aid on it, 
and I take that Band-Aid off, what do you think's under the Band-Aid? The infection. So even though leaders might feel good and competent and, and, and useful by having these conversations, it's not rectifying the issue. And in the long term, it's burning that leader out. So the key piece of advice here to avoid accidental counselling is that very thing. Take the word advice and get rid of it. No one advises around mental mental health or mental illness in workplaces. Workplaces' jobs are to support and guide. It's up to the actual unwell person to then go and seek adequate advice from qualified individuals in order to fix the problem. Yeah. And I imagine that would be... That would be tough because if a leader is invested in their team and they legitimately care, then their natural inclination is to try to support. And by default, though, they could actually be making it worse. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, it's, I, I call it uninten- un- unintentional care and damage. <laughs> so, and you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, when you lead a team, um, you want them to do well. And, you know, when they do well, that reflects well on you and it's a really good feeling. Uh, and that doesn't exclude talking to them about any kind of illness, whether they're physically unwell or mentally unwell. So it's really, really important um, to give leaders boundaries. We can show a leader how to be caring and empathetic when identifying and responding and managing someone that's unwell in a workplace, but we have to give them boundaries. Because if, if, you're, if leaders in organisations don't have boundaries, you're going to end up with two pockets, ones that don't respond at all, and letting the problem fester, and ones that get too involved and, and and can burn themselves out in the process, as well as run the risk of saying or doing the wrong thing that isn't in the best interest of that person's recovery. It's a fine line. We can still care for our team members, but we cannot fix our team members. We can help them access people that can, and that's the very role there. Help them access and support them in the process of getting better that it's not the leader's role to coach them to health. So what are, what are some of the general signs we should be looking for? Yeah, sure. Well, there are many. <laughs> there's many. Uh, you know, there's cognitive and, and, and um, behavioural and emotional and, and, and psychosomatic signs we can have a look at. And so I'll start off, I'll start off at a higher level and then go a little bit deeper. My, my first piece of advice when I'm running these programs and helping leaders establish boundaries is don't get your magnifying glass out too early, okay, because that's where it, again, takes us back to accidental counselling and it does increase the opportunity to offend someone because something might not be wrong. They might just be having an off week. Um, the best way that I can describe and the safest way is as a leader, look for two things in a workplace, a change in behaviour or a change in performance. And when I say change, that normally equates to a drop, okay? So nice, safe, validated ways to justify intervening. And that's what's giving leaders confidence because, you know, you've, you've heard the old saying, we can't see what's wrong with someone when they've got a mental health problem. It's subjective. But in a workplace, you can see if someone's behaviour's changed and you can see if someone's not performing their role very well. So... Performance aside, I want to flip back to behavioural now or emotional. Signs would look something like someone that was normally chatty and engaging starts to withdraw. Someone that's got quite a tempered personality starts to become bitey and aggressive and short-tempered and hypersensitive. 
Um, you know, you've got your age-old and obvious bits and pieces, aggression, tears, um, and then coupled with, you know, how well are they doing their job? How well are they doing their job? So you're looking for essentially a change in someone, and that change is your validation to, to, to go forward. Another sign would be from a psychosomatic piece is, are they having a lot of sick leave? And people are entitled to that. I'm not here to, to, to criticise that at all. We need it. It's our right entitlement. But how sick are they and how sick are they uh, for what reason? You know, uh, flus are a big one because when you hit a level of unhealthy stress, the first thing to go is your immune system. And, you know, I get it here. I mean, Melbourne's cold. Sure. <laughs> so yeah. people, people get flus and they get colds and I get that. But my question is how many are they getting? Because, you know, that can be a sign. And the thing is it doesn't have to be hard. You just say, geez, you've been unlucky on the flu front this, this, this year. Is everything else okay? And they'll either say yes or they'll say no. Or they'll say, look, Anna, I just got unlucky because I've got kids in daycare and they keep bringing home the green loogie. You know? That's me. I know, right? <laughs> so, but, you know, never underestimate a sign um, because they're either going to tell you or they're not. So physically, behaviorally, and emotionally, you'll see signs and drop in performance. So just to summarize that piece, look when their behavior changes. It's quite obvious when it does and look how well they're able to do their job. So I'm in a, I'm in a leadership role and I, and I see either a change in behavior or performance. Mm-hmm. When should I have the conversation? Because I imagine that it's, first of all, a leader's going to be thinking, am I comfortable having a conversation? Mm-hmm. That's right. And the answer to that firstly is, most leaders are not comfortable having the conversation because I draw us back to the fact that they've never been given the clarity or the permission. Yeah. People are just waiting for permission to care. Um, one of my favourite sayings is um, policy has killed care in workplaces. And again, um, not to be disrespectful of policy because it would be organised chaos without it, but we fear breaching policy more than what we do asking whether someone's okay. And it's just about bringing the human back. And once a company stands up and says, we want you as leaders to ask, it's part of our safety approach, people will start doing it. So the answer to your question is when you see a sign, don't wait. Because the longer that you wait, the harder the conversation is going to be because the sicker they they will become. So as soon as you see a sign... You know, and you're not actually, when you're having a conversation, you're not saying, geez, Anna, you're a bit quiet today. Are you experiencing a mental health issue? <laughs> you know, and that's, and, and you can't underestimate how, liter- how literal, literally the people will take you. You don't seem yourself lately. Is everything okay? Oh, I've, I've noticed that you haven't met a couple of those targets or you've, you know, dropped the ball on a couple of pieces of that project. Um, is everything okay? You know, it's about the person, not the organisation, just for that one moment. And that's the biggest key learning for organisations because workers and people in the general community have a lot of distrust and a lot of paranoia and a lot of embarrassment in and around mental health. And so the best outcomes for organisations and leaders when they decide to have that conversation is to make it about the human, not about the company. So my answer to that is don't wait. If you see a clear sign... Ask them if they're okay. And that's all you need to do is say, are you okay? And validate why you're asking. And that will either be you've either seen them do something from a performance perspective 
or their behaviours changed, or both. Yeah, don't wait. Get in there now. And how would you describe the difference between a mental health conversation versus a performance management conversation? Yeah, and, and, and it's amazing how much they can overlap. Look, in my experience, sort of working heavily in and amongst um, workplace personal injury data across many schemes, is if I was to take a lot of, of, of mental health or mental injuries in workplaces and I dig and dig and dig and see what happened in the beginning, there would at least, at least, and this is obviously not in research and text, this is just from my findings, the majority of these psychological claims or mental injury claims had some form of interpersonal conflict or performance management involved. It's very, very interesting. You've also got your other cohort of injuries that, you know, are a no-brainer. They've witnessed something traumatic or they've been involved in something traumatic or they've read something that was traumatic, being, you know, vicarious trauma. But interpersonal conflict or people assuming or presuming what's happening to them is one of the leading causes as to why people are becoming unwell in workplaces. Now, in saying that, I do have to specify before we have the what's the deciding factor is that from what I've been saying, there's a large flavour of people becoming unwell in the workplace, but the majority of the pressure in organisations is workplaces responding with people with non-work-related issues and bringing them into work. So it's a swinging pendulum. And if someone was to say to me, you know, is one more than the other, yes, absolutely. People are coming to work with non-work-related issues that are then getting aggravated in the workplace due to lack of programming. And so you take that person, okay, and they're not performing their role very well, okay, and their behaviour might have changed. We're bred to improve performance if, if, if performance starts to drop. That's just what policy's taught us to do. So a performance management conversation is a conversation about how we can improve performance in a two-way street way. What's missing, though, and why a lot of these conversations tend to go south is that we're having performance management conversations before we're having the are you okay conversation. You know, what's happening? Why, why is your performance suffering? Is there something that you need from me as your leader? What's going on? This isn't, this isn't normal behaviour for you. So the difference being, well, one is to improve performance and a mental health conversation is to understand what's going on so we've got a better, better insight as an organisation on how to respond to it. But unfortunately right now, companies are diverting to performance management conversations first and a lot of them aren't turning out too well because... You know, one of the, when I dial back to when I said two reasons why people won't speak up in workplaces, they don't want to lose their mates or their money. Okay. They don't want their capability questioned. They don't want to, you know, appear weak in front of their leader. The, the, the ironic thing is if we performance manage someone without at least having an are you okay conversation, their greatest fears just come true. So you're taking an unwell person and then putting another layer of pressure on them. Now, I'm not here to condemn performance management. It has its place in workplaces, absolutely. And I'm also not here to put a mental health label on everyone that's underperforming in workplaces either. That just wouldn't be realistic. There are people that are in the wrong jobs. But we need to be able to, regardless about whether they're the wrong job fit or they're unwell, have a set way in order to have a mental health conversation to determine who needs help and who needs to consider alternative employment. 
And by having an are you okay conversation in all of those instances, that's going to help companies work out who needs what. And so what, what, what are the legal responsibilities for, for the leaders out here? Mm. I wish I could say there were lots. <laughs> um, but obviously, you know, in the world of mental health in, in workplaces, you know, mental health or mental issues aren't a new thing. They're just becoming a newly respected and recognised thing, you know, from, from a multitude of, 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 of sanctions across society. So legally, it very much sits squarely under the WHS legislation, depending on what act you're under per state to state. So, you know, your, your, your legal obligations essentially are to provide a safe, supportive and productive environment for all employees. You are to do that in a fair and equitable fashion. You do need to be aware of what support resources are available. Um, you need to be aware of policies and procedures as a leader. But let's dial back to the first one, and I call that the king law. And that is, if you see someone that's struggling and you're not getting in there and having a conversation, and from a WHS perspective, you've seen a risk and voluntarily let it go, uninvestigated or, or, or not mitigated. And so when something or when it does blow out, you know, regulators will send workplace inspectors in and there are psychological workplace inspectors that have been around for a few years now. And the first question they're going to say is, when did you identify the risk and how long did it take you to intervene? And most companies literally say too long. So we are legally required under a WHS standard to provide a safe, supportive and productive workplace. So when you see a risk and you don't act on it, you know, that can have nasty implications. Whether it's a fair work matter, an IR matter, a workers' compensation matter. And then a lot of mental health practices falls into the um, you know, Anti-Discrimination Act as well. Because we aren't unintentionally discriminate because discrimination will always be around with mental health until we learn more about it. You know, I always ask the question, you know, to many of my clients, two people come to apply for a job for you. One's actually had the courage to say, I've got pre-existing depression, but it's managed. Who gets the job? And, you know, lots of people arm and are, and then they oh, we would like to think that we'd give that person the job. And I give them the Anna face, and I know that we can't see it on a podcast, but I look at them and they're like, I'd probably get, give the job to the one that doesn't have the mental health condition because I don't want to increase liability and I don't want to uh, make them worse in the process. And the discrimination there is... Uh, we're making decisions uh, based on um, medical capacity and uh, we're not doctors. Leaders aren't doctors. So, uh, in, you know, to, to, to sum that up, pretty much our legal obligations fall under the Discrimination Act or the Work Health and Safety Act. So we're talking before we started recording that there's been a shift. And I think in my work I've probably noticed that probably the last three to four in particular years mm. been shift. I'm curious about what you think is driving that shift. Is driving this the fact that there's more conversations happening mm. about it, that more people are going out in public and talking about mm. it. I think I think that's a really good question and I think it's got a large chicken or egg piece to it. But um, I guess in my opinion, and that's just Anna Faringa's opinion, uh, is that, you know, and I and I mean this with all due respect, if you take if you take a disease like cancer 
and you look at how society responds to someone that's been diagnosed with cancer now as opposed to how we responded to them 25 years ago. It's very, very different. People are more comfortable with the concept. I'm not saying that they're permitting it or, or that they're accepting that it's just life, but people have different responses. They have more empathy, more care because we've learnt more about it. We've learnt more about what causes cancer, what risks there are with cancer, and once you get cancer, what, what's someone likely to experience? You know, that's blasted all over Australia through charities and media and, you know, the frequency of people experiencing cancer and the consequences of it. Mental health sort of taking the same road. It was something, you know, so very dark and sinister not that long ago, you know, and I mean that with due respect. And more and more people are becoming unwell. Suicide rates are increasing. Um, diagnostic statistics are increasing. Okay, we've got 1 million Australians with clinically diagnosed depression and 2 million Australians with clinically diagnosed anxiety and we're losing nine people a day to suicide. So it's the, it's the, it's the natural consequence of what's happening to humans that's drawing attention to it, just like the cancer example. We're learning more about it. More people are experiencing it. The more we learn, the more people can identify, and it just snowballs from there. So mental health is very much in its snowball effect right now because we can't deny that it's not here because the consequences, even though we say we can't see mental health problems, the consequences we can, and that is either, you know, to an extreme level someone taking their life or high unemployment rates with people with mental health conditions due to discrimination potentially. And also self-reported data. I mean, Beyond Blue and the Black Dog Institute conduct a multitude of studies across Australian workplaces and get self-reported data from a lot of workers that might not have even had a diagnosis yet. And they're taking all that back and then shooting that out to the Australian public. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's very much taking that same journey. It's something we don't not naturally understand, but we're starting to understand more about it. So if we take that even further back mm. so we're, we're learning more about our understanding you mentioned just just then about the fact that more people are being diagnosed and there's, there's more what, what's happening that's what's causing this in people what's what's contributing to it what's what's impacting people what's impacting people to seek a diagnosis or to or becoming unwell in the first yeah, place just becoming unwell in the first place well gosh i mean it, that could be a multitude of factors i mean we've got higher stress and faster paced environments we've got you know the explosion of social media you know we've got increased mental illness in adolescents across australia that's been highly correlated with social with social media um, we've got a very different way in what um, society projects as a good life. What, do, what, what does it take to have a good life? And a lot of that's built around commercialism. You know, so what we're finding is a lot of people are feeling like failures and they're putting a lot more pressure on themselves to obtain the unattainable um, rather than what, you know, defined a, a nice, happy, healthy, balanced life 15, 20 years ago. Uh, so that would just be my opinion in itself. We've got workplaces that are operating on... Um, lower margins with lower resources you know so high pressure to perform but lack of resources to do it and therefore that's almost you know a, a deemed failure for a lot of a lot of employees so you know the likelihood of doing well at work um is is sometimes is, is at times failing uh because it's just it's it's almost unattainable to be the high performer these days so you know from a work perspective it's it's pressure and margins and resources you know from a social perspective 
what is it that defines a good human? What does a good life look like? Um, because we're projected to it 24-7, yeah. right? You wake up in the morning, how many Australians check Facebook, you know? And we have a look at people's perfect children and perfect lives and perfect figures and perfect homes and, and so forth. But then, you know, you take that, you shut that machine down and you go and meet that person in for a coffee. It's going to tell a very different story, but yet humans are carrying that impression around and they're trying to achieve it. Um, economy is another one. You know, and I'm by no means an economist, but, you know, I'm, I'm very, very familiar when I'm working with people that are unwell, the impacts of the economy on them, you know, and then functioning within that economy with a mental health problem, um, which can then exacerbate that. So it's, it's a gigantic area. I mean, I could, we could sit here on an eight hour podcast and talk about, talk about risks in, in, in life that can increase mental, mental illness. And, and then no one really has set data to say that there's more now. It's just a. It's just we're we're different when it comes to seeking treatment. There's just as many people that had mental illnesses 40, 30, 40 years ago. We just have a different way in which we respond to it in society, which makes it more overt. Yeah. So I'm I'm, I'm curious, and this this may sound like a, a <laughs> strange, ignorant question. But no. Just I was listening to you then. I was thinking about all the the things that can contribute to it, the economy and mm. the pressure of work and social media and all of those things. It, are some people naturally more predisposed to have it? Like is it potentially genetic and, and things like that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Um, and a lot of people that do, uh, you know, develop a mental health condition, um, you know, genetics and, and pre- predisposition is always taken into account. You know, there's high correlations with, with alcoholism. There's, there's, you know, definitely with, you know, psychotic-related conditions, um, high genetic link there. You know, it's, it's very, very hard to develop psychosis um, when it's not sitting in your genetic makeup, you know, for the exception of drug or alcohol-induced psychosis. So high genetic um, relationship, you know, it's been linked to depression as well. Um, so, it's, again, it's like that swinging pendulum. You can be predisposed. doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get it. But then you fuse that with our previous conversation of stick them into a society that's really hard to function in, the likelihood of them becoming unwell is then a lot more heightened. Uh, but, yeah, absolutely there's predisposition. It doesn't necessarily necessarily mean they will, but yes, yes, there is. So it's almost as though if we fast forward, you know, I don't know how, how, much, how many years we have to fast forward, but I'm seeing a place where mental health can be considered in the same way as physical mm. health. That's certainly my mission. <laughs> so what, what's, a, what's a leader or manager's, uh, or sorry, what's not a leader's manager's responsibility when it comes to mental health? What isn't their responsibility? It's, it's, it's not their responsibility to have the answers. It's not their responsibility to be the only person for that person to rely on. Um, and, you know, dialing back to your previous question about guest counselling, it's not the leader's responsibility to turn into a guest counsellor because, you know, if you want to put an element of comparison to that, you come to me, Julian, with, with chest pains and I'm like, oh, don't bother calling an ambulance. I think you've probably just got a bit of indigestion. <laughs> you know, so I'll just diagnose you and work out whether you're okay and I suggest you go and take a couple of, um, you know, heartburn tablets and maybe a glass of milk with the age-old yeah. wives' tale and um, come back and see me in a couple of hours. Let me know how you feel. You would never do that, would you? No. Why wouldn't you do that? Don't 
is dangerous because something else could could actually be wrong. So that's why guest counselling is dangerous. And I've you know as I previously explained, it puts pressure on the leader, and it's dangerous for the person because why would we ever expect someone that's got no psychological qualifications or social work or counselling qualifications to sit there and tease apart someone's problems? So it's not their responsibility to do that. And ironically, that's why we're avoiding having those conversations too because leaders leaders don't want to ask because they fear how they're going to respond. So let's take that fear away. Show them care and empathy. Show them a process and a guide to um, approach, open a conversation, support and guide this person to proper assistance. And that's pretty much it. You know? Um, I think it's important at this point that we do mention, yes, it is our responsibility to support and guide and not our responsibility to fix the problems. What is our responsibility is to also provide a safe and productive workplace. So if someone's not being able to perform their role very well, what can the leader do to bring some relief into the workplace at that point? Is there some adjustments they can make? Can they give them a couple of days off? Can they take some project tasks off them to give them some relief? That is the leader's responsibility, but it's not their responsibility to become the doctor. And once we get that message out there, leaders will relax and they'll have more more confidence to go in and start asking more people if they're okay. And what are some of the most common traps Mm. that, that managers and leaders face? Well... I mean, I will say accidental counselling, but I think we've spoken enough about that. That's a trap. Okay, we've established that. Um, another trap is obviously allowing that person to be codependent on you and and remember that the more codependent someone is on you at work, and it feels, it feels really nice to make someone feel better, you know. But like I said, they're going to want to have that conversation more and more and more because it feels so nice. That's a trap, okay, because they're not getting better but they're taking up more of your time. So that's a very big trap. So that's why we've got to support and guide out. Um, other traps are ignoring the issue, and we've spoken briefly about why that might happen. People are scared to do the wrong thing. They don't want to offend. They don't want to say the wrong thing. Um, another trap is, oh, I'm the leader. Thank God we've got human resources. Human resources can have the care conversation. Human resources resource humans, right? Well, in this instance, no, because that worker works for the leader, not for human resources. So if I was unwell and I worked for you, Julian, and you said to our HR department, really worried about Anna, seen her change in behaviour, her performance has dropped, can you touch base with Anna and have a care conversation with her? And then I get contacted by HR, hi, Anna, we've just heard from Julian that we're hearing you're not travelling too well, would you like to have a chat? What do you think that does to the already existing paranoia and mistrust of speaking up in workplaces about being unwell? So HR, it is not HR's job to have that discussion. And when HR have that discussion, it becomes formal, and that's what people fear most. So that's trap. Um, and that person will never speak to their leader again, or particularly not with what's going on with them anyway, because yeah. they're like, well, who, who else knows? Why am I getting this phone call from someone from HR talking about my well-being? Why hasn't my leader just come to me? You know, it's it's very it's 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 unintentionally disrespectful. Um, so that's a trap. And another big trap is having the conversation. So well done. You can wipe the brow. 
you can march home with pride and go, I'm the best leader in the world. You know, they responded well. They told me something was going on or they told me to bugger off, which happens too. Um, and then two or three weeks later, they might check in on them. So that's been and has been and continues to be a big problem because it's not just about one conversation. Because when I spoke about supporting and guiding someone back to someone that can help them, but also maybe making some workplace adjustments, if something's changed in the workplace to bring this person some relief, do you just let it go for three weeks and hope it works? Yeah. A leader needs to monitor those changes, you know, because they're only temporary. They're, they're, they're there to help this person recover. They, you know, they will end eventually when that person's health improves. But a lot can happen from one week to three weeks. If someone's already that unwell to the fact, to the point where they can't concentrate on their job and their behaviour's changed, we need to monitor, monitor them no less than weekly. Catch up with them. And it doesn't have to be formal. Go for a walk, have a coffee, whatever. How's it going? Is it working? From our last discussion, is it bringing you some relief? Do you need anything else? And then if they do decline, the leader's all over it. Okay, because if you, if you leave it three and four weeks, and I understand leaders are busy, that's when that's when complexity can 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 creep up. You can come into work and they're not at work, or they come in and there's a workers' comp claim on their desk, and they're like, "Where did this come from? I had the fabulous care conversation three and a half weeks ago. They should think I'm the best leader in the world." No, and I mean, if revert it back to physical. If I broke my leg and returned to work with a moon boot on, I wouldn't be able to do my role to a hundred percent capacity. So therefore, the workplace would monitor me to make sure they've got a reasonable and safe environment for me to function in while I'm recovering on an ongoing basis until I've recovered. Same thing with mental health. So in, the, in your session, which I attended, you gave what I thought was a really um, useful three-stage framework. Mm-hmm. And it's things to consider uh, before the conversation, yep. during the conversation, and after the conversation. Yeah, just flesh that out a little bit for the for the listeners. Absolutely. And I love the way that you put it into a three-step module as well. It's even more more logic around mental health. I love it. Um, so firstly, it is, okay, I'm a leader. I've seen some signs. I've got to have a conversation. Okay. And every leader, considering the rate of unwell people in workplaces, will be in this position at one point or another. First things first, how am I feeling as a leader today? I mean, what if you had a fight with your partner that morning or you've made a stupid financial decision on the weekend and now you're worried about money and how you're going to make the next mortgage? Or what if one of your kids are sick and your head's not in the game as a leader today? Is today the best day to have a conversation? You know, is that person going to get the best of you that day? Um, Are you going to be able to listen to them authentically when your head's also out the window thinking about what's going on with you? But also it's extra stress on the leader. They're already having a bad day. So first things first, are you in the right headspace to have the conversation? If not, can it wait till tomorrow? Um, another, another consideration before the, the conversation is, do you book a meeting? And I often pose that to a lot of workshops. And it's normally a 50-50. 50 people, 50% of people go, no, you wouldn't. You know, it's about bringing the human back. You grab them and you have a care conversation. You know, mate, have you got five minutes? Let's go for a walk. And other people were saying, yes, well, we absolutely must in accordance with policy and this and that. And so you can see, you can see the transition starting to happen in workplaces. So my advice is you don't book a meeting. All right. If someone's showing signs of not being that well and you send them a meeting invite for 2.15 that afternoon, what are you going to call the meeting? Quick catch up? 
quick chat. So if this person's already showing some symptoms of something, right, in the workplace, what do you think the next six hours of their day is going to be like? Why do they want to meet with me? What's going on? What have I done? Am I going to lose my job? What's going on? And it just brings, it just takes us back to square one. It formalizes something that doesn't need to be formalized right now. You grab your worker authentically, naturally. If you've got five minutes, I want to have a chat to you. And then you be careful about where you take them because the underpinning piece of this is dignity. All right. Because you don't know what reaction this person's going to have when you ask them something as personal as I've seen X, Y, Z. Are you okay? You're going to get people that are going to be embarrassed. They're going to get people to throw their arms around you and thank you. You're going to get tears. You might get someone that's a bit gruffy and say it's none of your business. You know, it's all going to be, you know, mixed. So we need to think about where somewhere private and dignified. Um, another piece to consider before you have the conversation is please don't write it down while you're talking to them. Okay, people are already paranoid enough and conscious enough. When people are writing notes and you're pouring your heart out to them because of whatever's happening in your life or how you're feeling, you need a set of eyes to look at. And you also don't need, you know, writing on paper going, where's that going and why are they taking notes? Again, that puts us back to square one. That person will continue to be paranoid. They won't tell you anything in the future. Um, so they're, they're, they're three things to consider before you have a conversation. Where, how am I feeling? Please don't take a pen and paper in. All right. Um, during, during the conversation, well, first thing, we've already covered this, is you need to validate why you're having a conversation. If you don't have validation, it's going to sound pretty silly. So, you know, I've either seen that you haven't been yourself or I've seen a couple of mistakes made at work and then you get rid of it because it's not a performance management discussion, but you've validated why you need to have a chat to them. Where it really blows people's socks off is, you know, they hear the fact that they've done something wrong and then the next question's about them. That's that's new performance management, you know. Um, so the next thing is asking them what they might need. You've validated why you need to speak to them. Mate, what's going on? Do you need anything? What do you think might help a situation? And they might have every answer under the sun or if they're in an emotional state, they might turn around and go, I don't know what I need. And when they say, I don't know what I need, then a leader can go forth and offer adjustments and whatever um, support services are available in that organisation because they vary. Most have EAP. Um, you might want to consider local area support services. Hotlines are a great thing. There's many of those now. So you can, you can offer that because I think just giving an EAP card, and EAP is amazing. Um, I think it's one of the best concepts to hit Australian businesses. But I also find that over time it's become a bit of a cop-out for leaders not having a conversation um, and they hide behind the EAP card. I want that EAP card to be given in every circumstance, but I want a conversation to happen first. All right, so you take them, you validate, you ask them what they might need. If they don't know, you offer whatever's applicable at that time and then you agree on a follow-up schedule. I'll catch up with you next week, depending on what you've agreed on, okay? We're, we're basing this conversation on the fact that someone's actually opened up and told that leader something, though. You know, we've also got to manage the ones that don't want to tell you anything at all, okay? Um, so that's what I would consider during the conversation. Also, during the conversation, be transparent with them. If they ask for something that's unachievable, tell them. I don't think we could probably meet that request, but what we can do is this, but, but I'll go and double-check and get back to you. Because all these people, most people want help, 
right? But, but right now as a mental health consultant in the field, you're battling against a lot of preconceived stigma like um, they're only doing this for a workers' comp claim or they're doing this to get out of work. And that's, that's, that's very much here. I'm honest. I'm brutal. That is very much here, right? And that's just part and parcel of the big old monster called stigma, right? But if you have an authentic conversation in a private location, you know, person to person, eye contact about them, not the performance, let them know, look, we've agreed on this today. I'll flick you a quick email so you've got to, you know what we've agreed on today. It might involve a couple of days off or half shift or a different job. And the good thing is with that, and a lot of people get prickly around this, but, you know, you do need it from time to time, is that you've got honest and transparent doc- documentation that's been received by both parties. And all it is is, thanks for meeting with me today. I'm so pleased I could help you. Take the next couple of days off. I'll remove a couple of tasks or we'll change your shift rotation or whatever it is. Um, and if you need anything further, come and see me. My door's always open and we'll catch up once a week to see how you're travelling. Works beautifully. You know, I mean, there's there's certainly industries and environments that, that don't, you know, that, that don't approve of that documentation piece. So that's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. But if it suits your organisation, then I, w- I, would, I would heavily advise that you give that one a go. Um, and it helps the company stay on top of where they are. It helps the worker understand where they are and what's on offer. And it's human. Yeah. 50 million people aren't BCC'd in on formal forms and all this sort of stuff, you know, because that's why people won't speak up in the first place. And then after, pretty simple. Be consistent. Have you have your catch-ups with them. Be available but know your boundaries. Um, also, make sure when you say you're available, you're available at work because codependency has leaked outside the workplace before. Again, another negative offset of becoming the accidental counsellor because all they want is you, the leader. You're good enough. I don't need GPs. I don't need psychologists. I don't need, you know, I feel good enough when I'm talking to you, but that's the Band-Aid and the infection piece, isn't it? It doesn't end well for anyone. Keep up with the plan, with what you've agreed. See how they're travelling. Be consistent and also have a conversation with this person. If I'm going to change the way you do things at work to allow you to recover, people are going to see it. If they come to come to me and ask me why you're doing a different role or half a day's work, what do you permit me to tell them? And people might say, don't tell them anything. This is private. you know. And that's what we assume a lot of people will say. And if they do, then as a leader, acknowledge that and respect that. Always respect their confidentiality. But have a conversation with them and say, well, it's our legal obligation to provide a safe, supportive and productive environment for you. If I can't tell people why you're not here or why you're only working a half day and then your workload's going on to other people, they're going to come to you and want to know, what are you going to tell them? And that's where a lot of people go, oh, geez, I really don't know. I probably just say it's for personal reasons. And that's where the leader says, great, then let me say that too. Because the, 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 the nasty thing about, you know, not telling anyone anything is that if people in the workplace aren't told what's going on, they're going to damn well make it up. And then you've got an unwell person that's trying to recover, coming into a toxic and gossipy environment. So, But at the end of the day, it's all about what that worker permits. And if they say, okay, no problems, let them know that it's for personal reasons and that it's temporary, that actually helps a lot of people that are unwell recover better. Because a lot of people that, you know, want it kept confidential, the environment doesn't turn very nice very quickly. 
Are there any books, resources, places to go that if people think they need to find out more? Well, I think one of the best resources I can recommend and one that I heavily use, um, particularly in workshops and training, because it's current and it's endorsed is, um, and it's great for managers, is uh, www.headsup.org.au. Um, it's full of stats. It's full of um, documents you can download for free. As a manager, how do I put mental health on my meeting agenda? As a manager, how do I have a mental health conversation? You know, and it's, and it's all there that you've got checklists. How healthy is my team? Um, it's got great questions to ask. It's, and it's, I like it because it's taken all the clinical mishmash that we deal with <laughs> uh, and then belts it into a format where it's digestible, it's easy to read, um, it's applicable to pretty much every workplace in existence, and it's free. And it's endorsed by people like Beyond Blue, Black Dog Institute and so forth. So that would be the best resource. Books, there's books are many. Books are many. There's, there's, there's a lot of people that are, that are writing about what a healthy workplace looks like. Um, so I won't actually name anyone in particular, but I would pretty much direct uh, anyone that's listening to this podcast to, to headsup.org.au. Um, Beyond Blue is always a great website. Um, current research, they're constantly updating it. Uh, really, really helpful and, again, written in a beautiful way where it's digestible and, and, and easy to understand and easy to apply in your workplace. Okay. And if people want to find out more about you and the work that you do, where should they go? Well, that's a very easy answer. So um, if people want to have a chat to me or, or find out more about um, the world of uh, workplace mental health consulting, uh, you can find out more of Anna Faringa at annafaringa.com.au. So any last words on leadership and mental health? I do have last words. My, my last words are it doesn't have to be as hard as it appears. And it's perfectly natural to have fear around something that we can't necessarily see or understand. But just imagine if it was you and you were unwell in the workplace, how would you like your leader to approach you and help you? And that's what I always say to relax people when I'm training them in how to do this is whenever you get lost or you get too caught up with process, just think about if it was you, how would you want your leader to respond and help you get back to health and get back to work? Well, on that note, thank you so much, Anna, for being on the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure being here. Well, that wraps up episode 80 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast, another business leader interview episode for you. I'd like to encourage you to head on over to the Synergen Group website and engage in the conversation with us. Tell us what you liked about the episode, tell us who you'd like us to interview, or tell us what sort of content you'd like us to put together for you. And if you are an iPhone user, I'm always going to encourage you, head on over to the Apple website and please do leave us a review. It really does help bring awareness of the podcast. In next week's episode, we have another great author interview for you, right? Chat with Lynn Kazali, who is the author of Ish, The Problem with Our Pursuit for Perfection and the Life-Changing Practice of Good Enough. It's another great author interview episode. Until then, love to hear what you think and happy listening.